Case 7, Xiao Shou's Wash the Bowl. A monk asked Xiao Shou, have you, I, I'm sorry. A monk asked Xiao Shou, I have just entered this monastery. I beg for your instructions, teacher. Xiao Shou replied, have you eaten porridge yet? The monk said, yes, I have eaten. Xiao Shou said, then go wash your bowl. The monk had an insight. Do I stop there or someone read the yeah, comment? Yeah, you stop there and then we okay. finish it. Five minutes. Okay. So I guess we start with Donna and we read um, the koan again and woman's comment. All right. Um, case seven, Jojo's wash the bowl. Monk asked Jojo. Um, a monk asked Jojo, I have just entered this monastery. I beg for your instructions, teacher. Jojo. Jojo replied, have you eaten porridge yet? The monk said, yes, I have eaten. Jojo said, then go wash your bowl. The monk had an insight. Woman's mm -hmm. comment. Opening his mouth, Jojo shows mm -hmm. and reveals his heart. Mm -hmm. This monk had not truly listened to Jojo's words, calling a bell ajar. Because it was so extremely clear, it took so long to come to realization. If he knew that candlelight is made up of fire, then the rice would have been cooked long ago. Okay, and now we sit for five minutes and then we'll write for five minutes and I'll ring the bell at the end of the first five minutes. Now we ride for five minutes. I guess it's scale. Gail? Gwalgu's okay. uh, comment. There is an 8th century Indian Buddhist saint, Santideva, who had a saying, if there were no paved roads, if everywhere you went, the ground were full of rocks, pebbles, and other sharp objects, which would you do? start paving the road wherever you go, or just put on a new pair of shoes, or put on a pair of shoes. The point is, when you change your perception, no obstruction can harm us. It's not to say you shouldn't change what needs to be changed, but it is important in the meantime to change yourself first. 
In Chan, however, the view is that the road is already wide and open, flat and paved. Glenn? Hmm. Strange, isn't it? Let me put it a simpler way. You're free to drink water when thirsty and eat when hungry. In doing so, don't let yourself get in the way. The story is about a new monk who came to study with Cha'an Master Zazu. Uh, how is that pronounced? Shashu? Zashu? Someone? Zhao Zhou is what? what I've heard over the years. Say it again. Zhao Zhou. But Nancy would Zhao probably Zhou. know better than any of us. Through Zhao Zhou's own story, you can get a glimpse of what practice realization is about. Zhao Zhou met his teacher, Chan Master Nanquen Puyan, Puyan uh, when he was 18. Even at such a young age, he already knew how to practice genuinely. Nanquan was ill when Zhao Zhou first came to practice with him. So Nanquan received him informally while lying down. He asked Zhao Zhou, where do you come from? Zhao Zhou answered, the temple of auspicious Buddha. Uh, <clears throat> then Nanquan said, did you see the auspicious Buddha while you were there? Zhao Zhou did not get caught up in conceptualization or intellectualization. He did not think, oh, the Chan master is testing me now, must give us an answer. He was right there in the moment and replied, no, I am seeing a reclining Buddha now. Nanquan immediately sat up and asked, who is your teacher? Zhao Zhou retorted, it is good to see that you are still well, teacher. <laughs> Am I next? Okay. When Nan Quan asked Sao Zhou, who is your teacher? People would normally take that to mean, who is your past teacher? Who have you been studying with? to which people might usually <coughs> answer with mine dwelling in the past, I studied with so-and-so and so-and-so, -and -so, perhaps listing all the great teachers that one has learned from in one's repertoire of teachers. And, I, and to me, the, this connects with um, wash your bowl in that what's the immediate thing going on? But Zalzo answered, it is good to see that you are still well enough to teach, teacher. Essentially, he was saying, right here, right now, I see you as my teacher. Impressed, Nanquan took him as a, in as a disciple. So even at the young age of 18, Zalzo was intimately living in the present moment, unlike ordinary folks who were always living in the past or future. He was not trapped in concepts, ideas, and intellectualization of this and that. So did we miss Donna? No, well, Donna read initially. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, so I think Nancy is next. Nanquan died when Shosho was 57 years old. He teacher for three years. Then for the next 20 years, he, he social, am I going to get corrected? Excuse me, Nancy? 
It, it means traveled. Sojourn? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't mention uh, correctly. Uh, Sojourn or... Uh, He's just going to eat some places to meet teachers. Perfecting his understanding, he began to teach only when he was 18. Fortunately for us, he lived to be 120 and got to teach for another 40 years. If one of those incredible 10 luminaries. luminaries. Nowadays, people think that are luminaries. luminaries. Nowadays, people think that teachers after reading only a few books. Or they study with a teacher for only a few years and want to visit other teachers. Few others buy for a piece of paper, a certificate of enlightenment. The traveling monk in the story may also have been sojourning to different monasteries, like Zhao Zhou's in his practice days, testing out his understanding deepening it under various teachers. It was perhaps morning when Zhao Zhou received this new monk, which is why when he came and asked, can you instruct me, Zhao Zhou responded, have you eaten some porridge yet? The monk said, yes. Well, then go wash your bowl. That's basically the story. So ordinary, yet so hard for many to see. Is it me? When yeah. Shasho met his teacher, he was completely in the present. No past, no future, no baggage. For this visiting monk in the story, when asked whether he had eaten yet, he was dwelling in the porridge already eaten. He needed a good smack back to the present, but Jojo was gentle with him and kindly brought him back to what needed to be done. Wash your bowl, leave no trace. Trace of what? The past? and the belly full of porridge that he brought with him. Fortunately, this monk had good karmic roots. With a good horse, all one needs to do is show the whip, and the horse immediately knows to gallop. Now I ask you, you've just finished a period of sitting meditation. How was your sitting? Good. Fold your towel and tidy up your seat. Opening his mouth, Jojo shows his liver and reveals his heart and guts. That is, he offers everything he has to his students with his kind grandmotherly heart, without holding back anything. In Chan, there is no secret teaching, no esoteric transmission, no empowerment needed. You are already empowered. When a student comes, the teacher offers whatever is needed, quenching the thirst of the seeking mind by snatching it away. The question is, are you ready to give it up? Are you ready to truly listen to Zhao's words? Are you ready to call a bell a jar? Or do you think a bell is a bell? A jar is a jar. Most translations render woman's comment in this way. If the monk did not really grasp the truth, he would mistake a bell for a jar. That is, the monk truly grasped Zhaozhou's words. For this reason, he realized a jar for what it is, a jar. However, this is a superficial, logical reading. 
It is also grammatically wrong reading by injecting words that are absent from the original Chinese, just to make it rationally sensible. The correct rendering is, this monk had not truly listened to Zhao Zhou's words, calling a bell a jar. Here, Wu Men points to the fact that the monk did not really understand Zhao Zhou when he said, excuse me, when he was asked whether he had eaten yet. He took a simple question on the surface level. His mind went to the past, dwelling on the porridge that he had eaten. It was only when Zhao Zhou smacked him back to the present that he gained insight. The Buddhist monastery, uh, bells are dome-shaped and look like upside-down jars. Similarly, in life, things may look the same, but they are different. When you experience the world through delusion, you experience the world as just a plain old world that you see every day. Yet, when you experience the world without self-reference or grasping, the world is also just the world. However, the two are different. In the former, you don't really see the world. In the latter, the world comes alive, as it is the world. Um, because that monk in the story had good fortune, Zazu was able to teach with no reservations. When Zazu revealed to the monk what, he, what needed to be done in the present, the monk had an opening experience. When the minds of the master and the students meet, awakening occurs and the student gains insight into that which is so obvious to the present moment. The obvious shakes the earth and crumbles the heavens. In, in such a state, does it really matter whether you call it a Buddha nature, awakening or delusion, or even if you call a bell a jar? When genuine meeting occurs between a teacher and a student, there's nothing that stands in the way of that encounter. Such meaning cannot be fabricated, reproduced, premeditated, or contrived. What you can do as practitioners is do your part in making sure there are no obstructions within you, no baggage that you're dragging around everywhere you go. Be in the present, here, now. Uh, to do so takes a genuine practice. You may be sincere, but if you are not truly engaged in practice, then you are stuck at a conceptual or intellectual level, dragging all kinds of baggage. Whatever the teacher says can be processed only through the baggage of concepts, <coughs> categories, distinctions of good and bad, having or not having, with discriminating thoughts such as, why did he say this or that? Is he testing me or not? Should I be giving a Zen answer? These rational processes block you from perceiving things clearly and truly. They are unnecessary filters of your own biases accumulated since beginning, accumulated since time without beginning. You realize how to recognize, you realize only to recognize how one person's heaven is another's hell to know the truth of these words. Uh, Nancy, do you need strings? Yeah, yeah, that is a candlelight made up of fire, guys, that was put long ago. Oh, as I often say. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, hmm. yeah, 
It's a little muffled. Can you hear me now? That's better, yeah. Much better. Oh, okay. Genuine <laughs> practice is candlelight, make up of fire and rice that was cooked long ago. Or as I often say, IHE, if you already know that this very mild yours, this very hot is no different from that of the Buddha's, then candlelight is fire and rice is already cooked. Even without cooking it, that's the crux of this case. The problem is, why isn't your rice cooked? The scriptures, Buddhist treatises, Chan stories all point to the fact that everyone has Buddha nature, that this nature is all beings. In this case, woman uses the analogy of candlelight and fire. In the old days, candlelight was used as light. The light from the flame was used as a lamp. So candlelight, light, flames, they were essentially one and the same, inseparable. The form is the candle, light is its function. They are inseparable. Similarly, our true nature and its function are inseparable. Ooh, I love that. Similarly, our true nature and its function are inseparable. Our true nature is freedom and its functions are thoughts and feelings. Some people cannot see that candlelight and fire are inseparable. They may have a problem with fire. The problem is not the fire. It is our attachment to fire as separate, independent, and fixed. There lies the problem. The fire refers to our thoughts and feelings. They are not the problem here. It is our attachment to them, reifying them as fixed things that causes suffering. The true nature of thoughts and feelings is freedom. They liberate themselves instant by instant. They arise and perish according to causes and conditions. There's no self in them anywhere. Self or I exists only when attachment is present. When self is present, thoughts and feelings are problems. You don't like this or that because the I is in the way. Liking or disliking comes from self-referentiality, a self in the center of all judgments and experiences. It is from that assumed reference that judgment of good or bad is made. You get caught up with the particulars of this and that in all the various appearances of the world and don't see the obvious. In the complexity of daily life, in your daily interpersonal relations, it is certainly not difficult to lose sight of your true nature. You've learned to categorize the people you meet into friends, foes, or perhaps neutral, that is, those you don't care about either way. Where do these categories come from? Why are you caught up with the proliferation of your own narratives of this and that? In a way, the foundation of Chan practice is to realize the obvious and stop getting caught up with yourself. To do this, you meditate on a method and strengthen your awareness, like an anchor. When you sit, just sit. When you walk, just walk. Even when you need to reflect and think about this or that at work, just do it without injecting a self where there is none. If you discover that you have strayed off into habit tendencies, 
of thinking, fabricating in a self-referential way, constructing good and bad on the basis of that. Bring yourself back to your method or to the task at hand again and again. Eventually, you will develop focus and awareness, stillness and clarity. Focus on what is actually happening clearly, the obvious task at hand. These two aspects of focus and awareness allow you to experience the wonders of the world without a self found anywhere. You may ask, since there is no self, then how can you live? Will you lose your identity, your memory? Of course not. In awakening, there can be subjectivity without subject, personality without a person, identity without grasping. Awakening has nothing to do with having or not having memory or intellect. The Buddha was extremely wise and eloquent. Some Chan masters were very skillful with words and were very well read in the scriptures. The difference is that there were no fixations or rigidity that got in the way. Without focus and awareness, you will definitely get caught up with self-attachment. Why? Because self-attachment and its habits belong to the scattered, fragmented layer of mind. This is not to say that self is absent if you're free from scatteredness. It is just that you need to be at least free from the coarsest layer of the mind before you can have even an inkling of subtle forms of self-attachment. This is why genuine practice is necessary. So in woman's candlelight analogy, if the candle is very steady, then the luminosity of the fire expands throughout the room and you see things very clearly. This means that if the ability to focus, to stay with one thing is present, it allows you to be clear, to be more deeply aware of what's happening. In the process of staying with that one thing, you understand the playful nature of your mind. You see it right through all the fabrications, constructs, narratives, the judgments of yourself, others, and your environment. So these two aspects of focus and awareness are the foundation of Chan practice. The more you practice, the more you become deeply attuned with how you operate. When you sit, your reaction, for instance, to wandering thoughts and, or, and drowsiness or other challenges actually mimics your habitual responses in life. But if you are genuinely practicing, you learn to meditate without adding anything to this moment, knowing that this moment is perfect, complete. It's all good. I don't get the IAG. It's it's the um, acronym for it's all good. Okay. Practice is not really about gaining this experience or that insight. It is simply not to contaminate the obviousness of right here, right now, whatever it may be. And I think uh, Nelda? There is not a single opportunity in life that is not practiced. No, I think Nelda. Nancy first. Oh, Nancy, right. right. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, it's not, there is not a single opportunity in life that is not practiced. There is not an occasion for working to the obvious. 
Yes, this includes the difficult boss and co-workers or the challenges of love and the trauma of disasters human created or not. Have you eaten orchard yet? The monk replied, yes, I have eaten. Perhaps this monk had a belly full of experiences and really thought there was something to them. Most of us are like that. Where did you study before? I studied with so and so. For long, for how long have you studied? Oh, I have been practicing for decades. These are just attachments to having or not having, to the past or the future. Thus, Shao Zhu cutting right to the chase said, Watch your boat. If you carry baggage, drop it. Then you can truly practice. Even if you've experienced a great, powerful, so-called awakening, drop it. Yes, a powerful, transformative experience can also, come, can also become an attachment. However splendid an experience, it will leave a trace if you don't know how to practice. During your whole entire life, you've carried with you the burden of your own baggage, your life story, and the narratives you've told to yourself through which you filtered all of your experiences. All of a sudden, with awakening, everything is totally shattered, the burden lifted. Through this powerful insight, you can now see clearly that candlelight is made up of fire and that clear and filthy water both have the same nature of wetness. You are left with the sense that all of your life you have been wearing colored glasses to see the world. Whatever you see is color tinted. In taking off the glasses, you realize how colored they were. Seeing the world without coloration indeed leaves a very powerful impression. People may have many of these breakthroughs. The more breakthroughs, breakthroughs they have, the more they actually see, seem normal to practitioners. They're nothing special. The first step in practice is to see through your baggage and not get caught up in it. Just return to the present, to the task at hand. Then as you practice and gain a belly full of experiences, more spiritual baggage, you have to drop them too and continue to practice. Even notions of further practice must be dropped until your bowl is completely washed clean. This is being a careful, skillful practitioner with every opportunity that presents itself, every misunderstanding with your family members, every communication problem, every challenge you find yourself facing, every breakthrough. Take care of the situation without injecting yourself into it. Have enough stability to allow the candlelight to illuminate. If your candlelight flickers too much because it is blown by the winds outside, Sooner or later, it will go out. So first, learn stability and focus so that no wind can blow out the candlelight. The stiller the flame is, the more luminosity there will be, and the more clearly things will reveal themselves. If you got something useful from reading this, use it. If not, just drop it.
The one thing I'm curious about is what's a bell jar? I know there's the poetry of, of uh, Sylvia Plath, the bell jar. I don't even know what a bell jar is. And I just realized that. They're not really talking about a bell jar. They're talking about calling a bell a jar. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. Do you know what a bell jar is though? Yeah, it's a, it's a glass jar that looks the shape of a bell. And you put, you might put, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it can be used for science, but it's mostly used for art objects of some, uh, something that's delicate or a, um, oh, a butterfly or something like that. That you place over something? You place it over a, usually a wood stand or something like that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I never the stand, the stand usually has a groove in it, so it's kind of an airtight case. A wood stand, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, but that's not what they're talking about here. They're just talking. About the thing I've been curious about is, is uh, why are the, the comments by women always so cryptic? I know. I think to myself, well, the koan isn't that hard to understand, but the comment is maybe the comment is the real koan. And, and we always think that, that these are good people and they're trying to make things clearer. Um, and, but also the, just the difficulty in doing that. I mean, just that I was trying today to, to give clear instructions and that's so difficult. It's so difficult. We used to have a writing project where um, the students would write how to do something, how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? And then another team would have to do it exactly according to the instructions. So, so they would, would have forgotten to tell people to take the top off the peanut butter jar, right? So here's the person with a knife just kind of, <laughs> this, they've not been told what to do. It's so difficult. My mind, it's just, and I sat here thinking, what an interesting connection. My mind with Juan's comment went to the fact that I have a little favorite thing I say, be noble for your made of stardust, be humble for your made of earth dust. And my mind went, because it was so extremely clear, it took so long to come realis to realization, that everything we are and everything we have comes from this planet. If we would just sit with that truth, we might take better care of it. And so I, I loved that because, because it was so extremely clear, it took so long to come to realization, not only in the koan, but so many things that are part of life. How about the rice would have been cooked long ago? That's a tough one for me. Yeah, I think that's what he's really, what um, Kuvu is really talking about in the last part of his, his own commentary. That, um, that sense of our confusion about who we really are. what we're really made of. We're already realized. We're already Buddha. Well, if we knew that, 
but the rice is already cooked. The rice would have been cooked long ago if we realized that. So we're still in a state of confusion, right? So I think, you know, <laughs> the, the analogy I think is, uh, and sitting in meditation is cooking the rice. And you're waiting for something that's already done. You're not understanding the nature of things. When Rupesh, either when he introduced himself as head student or when he signed off, referenced this koan, this was the one he chose. Mm, wash your bowl. Does any, do you... Does anyone, do you remember why, does, does anyone remember what he was saying with that? I don't remember, time what, for I don't remember why that was the one that, uh, that he was most drawn to. Yeah. I, it's funny because, um, you know, those of us who have been moms, it's like, this is like the most recognizable koan, right? It's like, <laughs> so it's like the kid is, well, I'm bored. Well, did you eat breakfast? Wash your bowl. You know, it's, it's uh, what should I do now? Um, it's, it's a, such a familiar um, feeling situation. Um, and that, um, and the, pro the problem with that is it makes you, it gives you the impression that it's completely understandable. It's a very accessible con in some ways yeah. at a superficial level. It's very accessible. So you could give this to any sixth grader right? Or any person who knew nothing about Zen. And they would, they would understand it at that level. So some of the koans, they're just, it's completely baffling. What are they saying at all? Um, but, but this one, I think most people can have a sense of some, some sort of co cognitive or conceptual sense that the koan makes sense. Um, and that's why the woman's comment and Gogo's comment are necessary if we want to take it deeper. Even even him saying that the monk didn't get it. Yeah. I mean, that's when you really have to be suspicious is when something seems obvious. Yeah. Yeah. It feels so transparent. Like there's nothing more to say about it. The monk had not truly listened to Zhaozhou's words, calling a bell a jar not seeing things as they are, I guess. Yeah, and you wonder what reply um, could the monk have given? What would you say? I would have said the same thing that the monk said. I was, uh, um, I was just thinking about um, in my own life, how I've always looked at enlightenment as some uh, event that's going to happen in the future. You know, something that I'm going to work for, you know, or I'm clinging to maybe an insight that I had in the past. I love how he keeps talking about dropping it. Yeah. Um, because it, they're pointing to just the simplicity of this moment 
like like Flint said, this is it. This is it in this moment. This is it. And it's uh, not past. It's not uh, future. But I noticed that um, I have a tendency to want to hang out in the past or, you know, go in the future. And um, one thing I really liked was when he talked about uh, kind of a practice in a way is, um, what did he say here? Um, the scatteredness. Um, in a way, I was, you know, like putting your focus and your attention um, as practice in each moment. And um, uh, a, a teacher that I follow said that recently. He said, just try every day, multiple times a day or whenever you think about it, just check in, just check in with uh, what's happening in your body, what's happening right here in this very instant. He says, have fun with it. Don't make it a big deal, but just, and then when I started trying to do the practice, I realized how often I was not here at all. Shocking, <laughs> isn't it? It's, yeah. it's one of the truly shocking things about practice. Yeah, yeah. And um, the other thing that I notice about myself, I don't know, you all have, you know, probably similar experience is I go about my day doing things like washing the dishes or folding clothes or doing the laundry or whatever, but I'm not with that. I'm, my mind is thinking about the next thing or what somebody said or making a plan. And yet, interestingly enough, my body and my movement and my beingness is steadily doing the next thing. It's like, that's my true nature. It's this mind activity that's, that's kind of moving me away. <laughs> it's this something extra we add on to the present moment experience. I also liked the last pages of this discourse, reminding us to even empty our bowl of the moments of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. I, that was so helpful, just let it go and keep going, let it go. Because that, I, I didn't even realize, I, I know that those little tiny moments I savor because they're so tasty. Um, but let it go, and 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 I and I do love the constant reminder that practice does not make perfect; it makes permanent. And so, if we keep practicing a certain way of distraction, we will continue to be distracted for a longer period because those neural tracks just get really deep grooves. And if we continue to practice presence in the moment with where we are right now, what we're doing right now, then that will become permanent eventually. And um, that's and why bring... we often say that, that uh, we get good at what we practice. Mm -hmm. If what you're practicing is self-criticism or if what you're practicing is judgment of others, you'll, you'll get good at it. You mean that kind of a little bit in a negative way? No. Oh, but there's a negative aspect to it that... There can be. Depends on what you're practicing. You're wearing a groove, so you can't get out of it. 
It depends on what you're practicing. Yeah. If you practice skillful communication, you'll get better at skillful communication. So it's, it's not necessarily talking about a rut. It's, it's about what we cultivate. And so I think that's the thing that's so distressing to people in meditation, in the early days of meditation, when they realize what the contents of their thinking are and, uh, and how pervasive it is. So it can be quite upsetting. Because you just realize this is just going on all the time. It's like really annoying voiceover narration. Now I'm going to be late. It made me very angry. What? It made me angry. I was what made, angry. What, what made you angry? The thoughts. Oh, the thoughts, yeah. Why won't they stop? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like the, um, the directness and simplicity of this koan a lot because it just has, it just keeps echoing. It's, it's pretty easy to remember. Um, so it has echoes. And sometimes I'll just think, just wash your bowl. So I've been noticing, maybe it's coming with age, but um, forgetting what I'm doing or forgetting the next thing. And I suspect that that has a lot to do with um, not being present to what I'm doing. Yeah, you, you move on to the next thing and you haven't, you forget that you haven't finished the thing you're doing. So I, yeah, so I, then I have to go back to where I was and, and then <laughs> it, it, it comes. Reconstituted. So that is the beauty of grocery lists or to-do lists. You can spend that time focused on what you'd like to accomplish with no end result necessarily in mind, like this is what I would like to accomplish. Set it aside, focus on the first task. When that's fully complete, move on to the next. I, I find that way of approaching, even, even folding one towel at a time, if I have a, things I have to do, okay, get this towel, this is all that gets folded. And then the next one. And I am, Kim, I, I was sitting here with a smile because I used to always chide my mind for taking me off in meditation. And, and now I, I'm a little gentler after this practice over this time. It's, oh, you wonderful mind. You just want to solve problems all the time. Thought, bye. <laughs> thought, bye. Thought, goodbye, thought. <laughs> so, so this practice. Practice has made me gentler in what comes up that I'd prefer not. Peg has mentioned before someone who stopped their mind and then could never get it started again. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be without thought. And I, I had a little bit of that a few weeks ago where, where I was like waiting for the next thought and waiting for the next thought. And I realized I was getting into that rut. I just had a little bit of feeling that and then I couldn't think. And then you know, finally I, I was able to quit that, luckily. Yeah. But it was, it was scary. 
Yeah. Where are they? Where are they? No thoughts. No thoughts. Just what I wanted. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah. So, um, Elizabeth once asked Joko, so what do you do when you're meditating? What, what's happening when you're meditating? And Joko said, mostly thinking. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, her students were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> but as I've been thinking about that comment, I heard it before is that, that, uh, it wasn't the ordinary, uh, she, she wasn't um, off in la-la land. She, she, was, she was present with her thinking, the way I, I assume. The idea is not to stop thinking. The idea is to know a thought as a thought, a physical sensation as a physical sensation, an emotion arising as an emotion arising. It's to know it for what it is. This is a thought. So you, you can be thinking, she's so mean. She's such a terrible person. If you understand having a thought, she's so mean. She's such a terrible person. You know it's a thought, right? And you're not um, caught by the notion that it's some re external reality. And then you can be curious, you know, well, what gave me that thought? Or how did that, where did that thought come from? Or, you know, you have, you have a basis for being aware. I have a lot of self-judgmental thoughts you might understand as a result of observing, right? Or um, uh, I seem to be angry a lot of the time when you're paying attention. You notice that. Now, I've been amazed at how, uh, and it's not with everyone's writing, but some people write in such a way that you just have idea in a really good way but you have no idea how these words could have come to them right you know what that mechanism is it was it's uh, beyond me. i mean some people tell a story and they tell a story well and that's one thing but but people who some people just can uh pull these things out of their head in just this miraculous way i don't know how they do that well, you do that with your own creative process. Yeah, and I don't know how I do it. What? You don't know how you do it. That's exactly right, because that mind can't know that. Yeah. Well, that would, it would probably um, kill it. Probably would kill it, yeah. The knowing mind, the conceptual mind, can't get there. I don't even know where thoughts come from. I, I don't know if you guys have ever tried... Kim, I think what you were saying is you've probably looked at this, and that's why you weren't able to think, is, you know, to try to catch a thought, like say, okay, I'm going to just really pay attention to what the next thought's going to be, and just like, like you're looking for it, and it feels like there's this tension, like there's this tension, yeah. <laughs> but no thought comes, but it, like it wants to come, there's something wants to come, but it won't because you're looking at it. And, uh, and then you relax for just a second and bam, something arises, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, so I, I'm really, you know, the whole curiosity about it exactly um, what even a thought is, I have no idea. You know, it's, uh, it seems spontaneous and they just arise. That's why I can't get too 
mad about them. <laughs> well, I, you know, you realize that they're just ephemeral. You know, they're like clouds in the. It's like getting mad at clouds in the sky. They're they're floating by. But but we do have patterns and we do have systems, and we need to understand those patterns and systems. And that was why Joko taught thought labeling as a meditation practice. So, you know, to just you rec you, you're not trying to um, figure out where your next thought is going to be, but instead you you realize you've had a thought, she's so mean. And then, so you then have the, the label is having a thought, she's so mean. And you begin in that way, it's, it's better, I think, than the Vipassana approach of just saying thinking, thinking. Um, because you begin to understand the systems of thought and the way they work, your own systems. So, oh, this inevitably spirals down to something bad I did. Um, or this, you know, like you start to see there's whole patterns there in systems of, of thinking and that they're not um, uh, the only way to understand something. So you, you begin to see, well, maybe there's a different way to think about this. Um, and I think that's very valuable, but really important to understand what our habit patterns are, what we typically will do, um, even, with, even with that practice. So you'll, you'll do it for a little while and you'll forget and you'll be just off in a daydreamer or some whole bunch of thoughts or whatever, you know, and then you just have to label the next thought that you, as soon as you sort of come to and realize, oh, I'm supposed to be thought labeling, you just label the, the thoughts as they come. But it's such a good practice because it's such a teaching and, oh, this is how I'm creating my world. I'm creating a world in which, you know, I obviously feel I need punishment or I'm creating a world in which I obviously feel everyone is letting me down or, you know, um, so you start to see patterns that are affecting your and creating suffering for yourself and sometimes for other people. But you also recognize that those patterns are not the reality of the world. You're not just apprehending some reality, but you're you're actively constructing it in your head. Yeah, I I um I tried that once when I was talking with you, Peg, and you'd mentioned labeling, and uh, what I realized uh, was that many of my thoughts were planning thoughts or trying uh -huh. to control a, a controlling thought about what to do. Uh huh. It's just like a tremendous amount of thoughts about planning for the future. Yeah, that's what you see. Oh, I'm, I'm caught in planning a lot of the time. There's the little kitty. Oh my gosh, he wants to he's, be on Zoom. He, he just, yeah. he, he's Zoom bombing you. He's so funny, you know, he just, yes, he always tried to catch my hand, you know. Like, oh, he's getting he bigger. attacking my hand. Like, oh, okay. He's so cute. Yes. Oh, he's so adorable. Say hi, Jeff. Everyone. <laughs> oh, such a cute face. He wants to play. <laughs> yes. Julie, you know, he teach me a lesson about focusing because he very focused on my hand. Okay. I need to yeah. catch it. I need to catch it. And then now he's trying to <laughs> every direction. <laughs> I think That's it's great. a mouse. Is he using the litter box now? See, <laughs> when I'm moving my hands, it is just. Yeah. <laughs> oh. No. Huh? <laughs> so sweet. So that may be all, that might be all we have to say about so this. I don't know if there's more that we want to 
discuss about it or about the commentary. I do have a question, Peg, and this, this came up just the other day and how it relates to the koan, I don't know, but my mind brought it up in this moment. And um, I, was, I was talking with someone and as I guess it thoughts, we were talking right now about thoughts. And so I was speaking with someone um, yesterday and the whole time that I'm listening to their explanation, my thought is, that's an uns unskillful approach. That's an unskillful approach. And yet, I, I, I was uh, sort of entranced by how they were trying to, and, and did in fact describe it in a way that could be seen as skillful. So the, so the thought came to me as, as I'm going, oh, Nelda, you're calling it unskillful. Is that a judgment? Are you judging? Are you just, you know, because when I was in the um, years ago in the um, Christian practice, we didn't use the word gossip. We'd call it sharing, but it was still gossip. And so, and so I was asking myself, am I using the word skillful or unskillful really to actually judge as good and bad? And then I asked myself, and Peg, I really got really confused. Is it possible that there are some things that may look unskillful to me, but are skillful to enough of an extent that they can be perceived as skillful by some with a different um, view of the prism? Oh, I think that's quite true. Um, uh, and I, and the, the place where you can really see this uh, more clearly is, is um, in anthropology. So there's the anthropologist. Whatever it is that they're, the people they're doing are studying doesn't look particularly skillful to the anthropologist, perhaps, right? They're dancing around a fire and beating a drum or whatever, you know, whatever it is that they're doing or the way they're treating their women or the way they're managing their economic system may look incredibly unskillful. Um, to an anthropologist, but it's perfectly skillful within the context of that culture. So, and oftentimes people uh, who have uh, real deep insight will do something unexpected or even paradoxical that turns out to be the appropriate response to something. So from your standpoint, you, you might think, I would never do that, you know? Um, so, and this, an example is that happened to me in um, IFS training. So I was in a small group exercise where I was supposed to be the therapist and the other person was supposed to be the client. And so um, that person had had a big traumatic flashback to a very traumatic childhood in the, pre in the previous session the day before. So, uh, so at the beginning of that session, I was just really quiet. And later the facilitator said to me, who was the observer, um, was a facilitator, said, I would never have had that level of patience to wait. And so it turned out, it turned out to be skillful because it allowed her space um, to um, process her experience. But so to the facilitator who was trained in this method, um, it didn't look skillful. 
And later when I asked her, you know, how was that for you? She said, I'm so glad you waited. That didn't come from my IFS training. That came from my Zen training, right? Um, the opening a space. So there are things like that, that I think, um, yes, obviously might look very unskillful to any number of people um, and yet turn out to be the right response. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. My sister was a psychoanalyst and she talked about how she didn't like to ask, ask questions because it would lead people somewhere they, they didn't, they maybe wouldn't have gone, you know. But that isn't there, it doesn't come from their own motive, right? Yeah. 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 Something to satisfy the therapist and then they'll come up with something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, I think um, uh, we, we can use those labels skillful and unskillful as a sort of subtle damnation or um, approval. Um, and that's, that's something we really need to watch for is that uh, it's always our tendency, you know, as, as it says in the Shinshin Ming, the struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. Um, so we're always struggling to make something bad and something else good. And, um, and that's, that's, that is that kind of disease. So, uh, but we can recognize when something appears to, to be unwholesome or to cause harm. Um, I don't think that that means we don't have discernment, but we should watch our tendency to infuse skillful and unskillful with uh, moral judgments or, you know, um, our requirements. But yeah, definitely, I can tell you that there's, there are more skillful ways to write a paragraph. There are more skillful ways to edit a text. You know, um, uh, it doesn't carry any moral judgment if someone is not as skillful. It's they are um, in the Buddhist terms uninstructed worldlings. You know, my students were uninstructed worldlings because they didn't know how to do some of the things that they were going to learn how to do in the class. So, <clears throat> so oftentimes I'll think, here we are, we're just surrounded by uninstructed worldlings, and look what happens. This is how you get the world we've got. <laughs> More important than ever that people, I think, um, uh, have an opportunity to experience the light of the Buddha's teachings. You know, just the more we can uh, help connect people, provide bridges to these wisdom teachings, the better. Right. And that's why we cultivate our skillful means, right? Um, it's in the service of that, that vow and that dharma. So yeah, it's, I think the, um, the wholesomeness and unwholesomeness or the harming and non-harming are, um, are what we're going for when we think about skillful means. It kind of related to that. I, I like to ask the question, um, so how does this end stuff like walking? You broke up there, I missed that. How suffering? How? How does washing your ball end uh, suffering? End suffering. How does being present end suffering? So those were things I was, I keep asking. Yeah, I, you're, you're um, taking a very direct line instrumentalist approach, you know, like somehow washing my bowl should be uh, relieving suffering rather than thinking about the ways that awakened beings 
create less suffering and have more potential for liberating beings from suffering. So, uh, so this is about being awake. There's a script I have from growing up that this would be a waste of time to wash a bowl and pay attention to washing the bowl. Yeah. I'm aware of that. But. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Um, and what does your partners think about that? About, oh, about, you mean Linda because doing tea? Is that what you're thinking? No, I'm thinking, what does she think about you not, not washing your bowl because you think it's a waste of time? Oh, well, my mom would not let us wash dishes because she was afraid we would chip them. They weren't great dishes, but they were, they were very soft um, earthenware and... Um, with you know, it was a dumb set, but she kept it. But no one was allowed to touch them. <laughs> but she also thought that was a waste of time. We had to do our schoolwork. That that's what was important. I have a um, an example for Kim about uh, washing the bowl and how it doesn't create su uh, suffering for me. And Melda made me think of it because Melda mentioned it, and uh, I was. Um, having to go through a lot of paperwork, uh, trying to get my mother uh, to get some assistance from the VA. Um, the paperwork and the red tape is just astounding. And I began to feel overwhelmed. It took me well over a year to get her approved for help. And um, I became so overwhelmed, I almost felt like I couldn't make a move, but I started doing what Nelda had mentioned. And that's, I just did the next thing right there, right that, fill out that little form. If I got stuck, I'd make a phone call and try to get somebody to help me and then put the phone down and just keep on with that. And um, that's the only way I got through that experience um, without the immense suffering I started to feel at the beginning of it. So my, ex my example, Kim. <laughs> I like to think about brick buildings and how they were, they were built just one brick at a time. You know, and you look at the whole building and it's just unimaginable that this thing could be built and then you look at a single brick and you can see someone putting on some concrete and setting down the brick and then the next one. Yeah, and there's some massive buildings have been built that, that way. <laughs> that's that's um, what we're doing in practice brick by brick. The irony of my practice right now is that for a lifetime, I took tremendous pride and got accolades for my ability to multitask. Mm -hmm. So if I had 10 things going at once and could juggle all of those, I was just, thought, that's where um, the, the accolades came. And now I think, what a very different life where my focus is this right here, just what's right here. It doesn't mean I don't prepare for the next day. I take my time to make my to-do list, but without a focus on the outcome, more on a, it's an aspirational goal. <laughs> yeah. 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 We don't, we don't make a to-be list. Mm, right. <laughs> right. Why is that? All right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, 
This is so lovely. And I'm so glad we have a chance to come together and do this. And, and, uh, and these koans are just uh, really fun to explore and dive into. And I hope it's still, you know, uh, feels worthwhile for you guys. Uh, I really appreciate Guogu's commentary where, where he's talking about something that isn't translated exactly right because it was first translated into Japanese and then into English, you know, so there's a lot of distortion that can happen. So I really appreciate the clarification that he gives when he uh, gives a little background or a little context or, um, yeah. It feels, uh, it feels sort of like you're being let in on secret, you know. <laughs> he uh, makes uh, Zalzo uh, a nicer fellow. Yes. <laughs> I really thought he was like not being very nice to say, you know, with, with this short explanation of what he should do next. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good to know the background. I mean, he was such a towering figure in Chan. So it's good to, we, and, you know, we have these various koans uh, that feature him. And uh, so I always enjoy hearing this or reading the background, a little bit of the background of his life. Yeah. Yeah, he had it right from the start, you know, right from the, a very young age. Not as young as Dogen, though. Dogen was eight. I didn't get that. No, it, he wasn't as young as Dogen. Oh. Dogen was eight. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, he was at his mother's funeral and he watched the incense drifting up and he, he had this awakening about impermanence. Very wow. young. Yeah, wow. very young. So. He was Zen, enlightened in another lifetime, probably. Probably. Yeah, Zen prodigy. <laughs> yeah, we can all aspire to that for our next lifetime, right? <laughs> I sometimes think about that. I, I sometimes think I'm going to have a lot to mop up in the next lifetime, you know. <laughs> you got to mop it up now, Peg. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best to mop it up now, but there's so much of it. <laughs> I'm being compassionate. I'm giving myself a thousand, thousand years. Yeah, many, many <laughs> lifetimes. Yeah. But, you know, encountering the Buddha's teachings is a very, very auspicious thing. So, mm. so we're fortunate that we have that. Well, I did go out and do, you know, try to track down the uh, the flower sermon um, oh, uh -huh. and it turns out that the first written uh, reference to what we call in the West the flower sermon uh, was in 1036. Wow. <laughs> it turns out. You don't mean uh, the Avatamsaka. Oh not even there it's it's just a uh, that's Avatamsutra is much earlier than that. Yeah yeah. Um, but the um, it's the Sung Dynasty was really pretty amazing for all of the uh, the koan collections were made then yeah. the lamp records 
and it was in the it, it's kind of an outpouring from the end of the Tang dynasty when so many of the different Buddhist um, traditions um, were dismantled um, and the Chan held on because it was pretty much out in the countryside. Yeah. But in the aftermath, the, the Chan kind of divided between groups that said, oh yes, Chan is the harmonization of the Buddhist teachings versus these other people who were saying, oh no, it's a transmission outside the scriptures. And uh, the Linji people, the Rinzai folks, were the ones who really pushed this idea. And eventually, as the records uh, were being compiled and they wanted lineages, um, since Mahakasyapa uh, was sort of the Buddha's successor, uh, and he did receive the Buddha's robe, though there are lots of different stories about when, um, he and he was the first one to call, he called the first council. So he's seen as the first patriarch. And then you move through time and you get to the sixth patriarch and he got a robe too. Um, and in the very first version of uh, the flower sermon, Mahakasyapa gets the robe. But that dropped, the robe element dropped out pretty quickly and it just became the what we know is the flower sermon, but it was all in service of creating um, the transmission outside of the scriptures. Uh, it, there, they talked about slogans, which I had, you know, I'd heard about Lo Zhang's slogans, yeah, yeah. not Zen slogans. And Bodhidharma, there were three with Bodhidharma. And, you know, there were various, you know, added to it over the years, but, um, the flower sermon basically was the confirmation of transmission um, outside the scriptures. So that's why it showed up in the 11th century, <laughs> thanks to our, our Sung Dynasty ancestors. <laughs> well done. Thank you for that. That and was that kind fantastic. of golden age of Zen. Yeah. There, it's one of those, you know, until you said last week, you know, that it didn't, it wasn't, you know, canonical. It's like, oh, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> so now I've learned all kinds of things. I just downloaded a PDF, a pretty long collection of um, texts, early Buddhist texts, very early Buddhist texts and very early Mahayana texts that are not collected in the Pali Canon or in the Agamas, the Chinese Agamas. So, um, and the, uh, the collector of them uh, said he's not trying to um, create some alternative, more authoritative state of texts, but he, he's wanting to point to the ways in which those other texts, those early Gandhara texts, and um, mm -hmm. that they actually um confirm some of the teachings the core teachings of the buddha so uh so most likely those te you know like the um four noble truths and the uh dependent origination so so um it's kind of interesting it's a massive i think 800 pages long thing but who, who compiled it um i don't it's an, a name i didn't know i'd never heard um so 
I can probably tell you in a second here. Um, <coughs> because it came through, you know, I have these academic um, lists that send me things um, related to Buddhism. And some of them are really interesting and useful. So this one, um, let's see, study. Uh, this is early Buddhism. Okay. So this is early Buddhist teachings. And the, hold on here. I'm going to get over to this side. Um, so it was, yeah, here we go. Um, So there's an introduction that explains why, how he gathered these things. Javier uh, Fernandez Vina. I had never heard of this person. But he's, um, but he's gathered all these, these texts and, the, um, and then he lists the teachings that he thinks uh, are confirmed by all of these early texts that agree with the Pali Canon. And then, uh, and then he lists some things that he thinks were not included in the early teachings of the Buddha. Some, yeah. So anyway, um, that was, yeah. If you, if you want a copy of it, um, I'm happy to share it with uh, you know, anyone who is interested. Oh, yeah. Yes, please. Is that, uh, was that you, Donna? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll just um, mail it to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. It, you know, I just thought it was interesting what he was trying to do. Okay. Here we go. You're still just Dogen at SBC? I am. Okay. Uh, it's a geeky thing, you know. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you know, you have to be super geeky for this to make, to make, you know, really be, be worth your time and effort. But yeah, I like those things. Okay, we're at the end of our time, but it's great to see all of you. Have a wonderful week. If I don't see you before, see you next time. Take care. Take care. Thank you, Peg. Thank you. Thank we're you so much. Yeah.